Well, we're gonna go ahead and get started with the second session. Um, and this one is titled Theological Triage. So some of you might have had conversations with me like this. If this is repeat information, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, not really, because it's good information. But um, I think it's important for Christians to understand what is the process we go through for determining whether something is of primary importance, whether it's something that is of secondary importance, or whether it is something that is of negligible importance. And so theological triage is, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the hospital system or nursing or something like that, but triage is when you look at patients and you say, this person needs to go to surgery right now. This person just needs a blood pressure check and to be sent home with vitamins. Like you, you, you make decisions onto what is the condition of the person? Do they need care right now? And what is the urgency? And so similar theological triage is asking the question, how dangerous is this belief? What is the, um, the insidious nature of it? Is it an innocent thing? Is it a misunderstanding? It's trying to discern, is this, because if everything is red alert response, eventually nothing is red alert response, right? And if nothing is red alert response, then eventually <laughs> you're gonna have some really bad things in your churches um, and really bad things that people are believing. So the quote in here, I think uh, this is from Al Mohler, um, and this is taken uh, out of a book, and the book is quoting Al Mohler on theological triage. So I just went straight to Al Mohler on it, but um, he, he has this to say. He says, the mark of true liberalism is the refusal to admit that first order theological issues even exist. Liberals treat first order doctrines as if they were merely third order in importance, and doctrinal ambiguity is the inevitable result. So liberals end up with doctrinal ambiguity, a whole host of beliefs that are acceptable and tolerated because they don't see anything as really all that worth fighting for. On the contrary, fundamentalism, uh, fundamentalism on the other hand, tends toward the opposite error. The misjudgment of true fundamentalism is the belief that all disagreements concern first order doctrines. There's a, a shorter quote by an anonymous person that, sa that basically says, a, a liberal has never met a doctrine worth fighting for and a fundamental has never met a doctrine that's not worth fighting for. That's the, the point. And so uh, what we're trying to do is not to err on either of those dangerous categories. And that doesn't mean that you won't get called liberal or fundamental depending on which way you're standing from somebody else. But what it does mean is we need to be careful of the dangers of saying every hill is a hill I want to die on. And contrarily to say, that's not a hill I'm wanting to die on. And you say that when anything approaches you, there are certain hills that Christians must resolve to die on. And there are certain hills that we must resolve not to die on because otherwise you would be having a bunch of churches with just you yourself um, and whatever three podcasts you like to listen to. And <laughs> that is not, that is not what we are called to. We are called to be a body. We are called to engage in fellowship with one another. And that is gonna require a certain level of tolerance and even charity towards differing opinions on things. And so then the question becomes, what reaches the critical mass of this is something worth breaking fellowship over, and these are things that are just a difference of opinion. And we have to be discerning enough to be able to know that there are such things, and then discerning enough to know what falls into those different kinds of categories. So for the sake of uh, just breaking it out. There's, there's many ways to break these things out, and I think different people have called it different things. For the sake of breaking them out, we're just going to call something a first-tier issue. There are things that are second-tier issues, and there are things that are third-tier issues. Would anyone have a guess as to what would qualify as a first-tier issue? 
Sorry? The atonement. The atonement. The atonement. If you see me misspell something up here, by the way, don't be surprised. <laughs> and if it bothers you, you can correct me. But So the atonement. Why would the atonement be a first order issue? Yeah. Right. If we misunderstand the atonement, one of the things we're slipping into is a misunderstanding on the work of Christ. And remember, if you want to go uh, up a little earlier, we defined heresy as something that specifically tackles something of salvific importance. Remember, that's that Michael Horton quote, salvific importance. The atonement is important for salvation. How we understand the atonement is very important for how we understand salvation to work. So if we get the atonement wrong, we get salvation wrong, and you have, you have moved a fundamental belief of the Christian faith. Okay, so the atonement certainly qualifies as first tier. Is there anything else that's popping in someone's mind is this is a first tier issue? Trinity. Trinity? Sure. Why would the Trinity qualify? Because um, if you don't, that's like the true God. So if you're worshiping a not true God, then it's not the same thing. Right. Right. Some of you were... Uh, went through the uh, Apostles' Creed with us today, and the Apostles' Creed makes certain claims about God. It makes a claim that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is a claim about who God is and what He is like. We, just because you say the words G-O-D, that you say that word out, that doesn't mean everyone means the same thing when they say that. You'll discover very quickly when talking to Christians, especially in the West, very many people mean very different things when they say God. And so claims about who God is and what he is like might qualify as a first-tier issue. The Trinity is one great example of that. We do not have fellowship with, uh, with Mormons. We do not have fellowship with people who decide that they have teased a part of the Trinity and do no longer believe in a triune God. That is something that we as Christians would say that is heretical and we would reject that. That doesn't mean we don't love those people, but it means that we would separate from them. We would not gather in worship in the same buildings and locations. That makes sense? So those are first order issues. There are other things that might fall into that camp, but just for the sake of time, we're going to move on to the more controversial of the, of the issues. Second tier issues. Does anyone have a guess as to what would qualify as a second tier issue? Baptism. Baptism. Why baptism? People have different opinions on if we uh, submerge, baptize babies, sprinkle, all yeah. of the above. Sure. Conversely, people also have different opinions on the atonement. What would put baptism in a camp that's not as dangerous as that. And it's not required for salvation. Like you would say it's a fruit of salvation, but you wouldn't say it's necessarily, if you, if you baptize babies, that you're not saved. Yeah. Baptism is something that, while people have very strong convictions on, and those convictions are all good to hold, and you should have a conviction about baptism, baptism is not an issue of salvific importance. What that means is, uh, if I disagree with, uh, for example, a Presbyterian brother and sister, that doesn't mean that I believe they're going to hell and I'm going to heaven. Does that make sense? The reason why that is something that qualifies in the second camp, and this is going to be important for all second tier issues, is there are issues that are significant, meaning you should have a firm conviction on them, but there are issues that scripture, while, while scripture is very clear and you should believe that scripture is clear, you have to admit that there is, on these issues, second-tier issues, at least some amount of ambiguity that allows for the difference in opinion. Meaning, people can use scripture and get to different places on these issues, and we would not say that they are unorthodox or not Christians as a result. For example, I'll give you the example for baptism. 
In Acts, there are a few passages that refer to someone baptizing them and their whole household. Okay, if, you, if you're familiar with those chapters in Acts, uh, you can turn there and you can check to make sure I'm not taking this out of context. Um, I don't know the references off the top of my head. Uh, maybe in Acts 4 or something like that. 16. 16 is a great example. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Lydia. <laughs> so... <laughs> the, the, so the debate around baptism centers as to whether the claim being made in the text is that they, that they baptized everyone in the household who made a profession of faith or whether they baptized the person who made the profession of faith and everyone who's under them in their household. That's the debate. So there is some ambiguity in the text as to which way exactly it goes. And you can appeal to church tradition to get a correct interpretation of that. Or you can appeal to other examples in scripture to get a correct interpretation of that. But the point is, while you should hold an opinion on baptism, it does not mean that you should call everyone who disagrees with you on baptism unsaved and therefore going to hell as a result. That is the difference that makes something a second tier issue. Can anyone think of another second tier issue that might qualify? Maybe principles for worship. Principles for worship, what do you mean by that? Uh, like regulated, regulated principles uh, of worship, so baptism, Lord's Supper. I guess it kind of encompasses that, but uh, versus anything uh, prescribed in Scripture versus anything not specifically prohibited in Scripture. Sure. So principles for worship would be probably, it, the, the thing that might make this difficult is some people consider things second-tier issues and some people consider those same things third-tier issues. The point of both second and third tier is that they are not of salvific importance. So there's some kind of overlap between them. I would say, depending on who you ask, worship would either land in the second camp or the third camp. The point being, once again, if you choose to worship differently than somebody else, that does not make you not a Christian. The point is, you have resolved that worship is essential and the triune God is worth worshiping. But how exactly you do that, whether you do psalm singing or whether you play new songs or whether you use a guitar or an organ or whether you just use your voices, all of that is up for conviction and also up for being rooted in scripture. So you can't say that worship is not important, but what you can't insist is that everyone must worship in the way that you've resolved is the best way to worship. There are some examples for worship of things that are aberrant and false. And so those things would maybe qualify worship as a second tier issue, which means if you get worship wrong, uh, you might really distort who you believe God to be and what you believe God to be like. And so that might qualify worship as a high order or second tier issue, but it depends, right? We have examples in scripture of the, the two sons of Aaron offering a strange kind of worship to God, a worship outside of his prescription, and they die because of it. So worship, we can't say is a negligible kind of thing, okay? So that would be a second tier kind of issue. What about third tier? Ooh, that's, yeah, we've, I feel like we've talked about a few, few of these things. If I spell this wrong. Let's go. Is that right? Huh? Yeah, there is. What I should have done is just, yeah, like a... Let me erase that. All right. What qualifies eschatology as a third tier issue? Great question. So eschatology, it just means the study of the last things. So the things that are going to happen in time to come. Okay. The last things? The last things. So the root here is esca, and it just has to do with uh, last or the things that happen later. And then ology is obviously the study of biology, you know, the 
obviously you've heard that chemistry is not an analogy. Uh. <laughs> 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 Zoology, let's give some good examples. <laughs> Yeah, so eschatology just means the study of the last things. So things that are going to happen in the end times. Meaning, whether you believe that Christ is coming and then he's going to reign for a thousand years and then afterwards the judgment, or whether you believe Christ is currently reigning right now and he'll come back and then the judgment, or whether you believe that uh, Christ will, will uh, come after the world has been subdued under his feet and then he will reign for a thousand years and then the judgment. All of those are valid eschatological positions. If you don't know what I'm talking about, by the way, this is why it qualifies in the third tier camp. <laughs> people don't typically divide churches and, divide, and disciple people into a certain kind of eschatology. That's not common. And the reason it's not common is because Orthodox Christians all across the centuries have vastly differ, differed on this. And it's because those passages that deal with eschatological realities are the most difficult to interpret passages in all of scripture. They're not of salvific importance. They're all the passages that have to do with the books that you try to avoid reading in your Bible plan every year, like Revelation, and then all of a sudden there's angels and horses and scrolls being opened, and you, you, three chapters in, you don't know what's going on anymore. That's pretty common. <laughs> and that's why we would say we don't divide churches over a difference of opinion in eschatology. What else would qualify in that kind of uh, area? Wear to church. Ooh, what you wear to church. Clothing. Do you have anything specific in mind when you think of that? Some people wear sandals, shorts, and t-shirts. Some people wear a full suit and tie. Or head coverings. Ah, I knew someone was going to say it. <laughs> yeah, what, is, what would be the, the issue with head coverings? If you could summarize that. That like all women have to have their hair covered or head covered in service. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 14, maybe 12, I don't know. Let me just go there. Yeah, so I'll give you an example. We'll just turn there for this one because this you might not be very familiar with this. So First Corinthians, and I believe it is uh, 14. I'm just going to read starting in verse 26 of First Corinthians 14. And if you're turning there... I'll wait just a moment. Now, I want you to be able to see this because these are things that are going to come up. You're going to talk to people and they're going to have opinions on this. That's not a bad thing, by the way, to have an opinion. What's wrong is if you insist everyone carries that same opinion. And you insist that that's a matter of salvation. That would be wrong. So, he's going to say in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at most three and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let each keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all be learned and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission to the law. Uh, so they should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Am I beyond this, or maybe it's earlier in the passage? It, was it in eleven? Oh, you know what? 
There's two controversial passages in Corinthians. That's tough. Yeah. That's tough. You just you just let me go. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just gonna read straight it straight to it in verse six. Someone should have stopped me earlier than that. So 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 6, says, For if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now, if you ask anyone exactly what that means, they will have to get a lot of buildup into the passage before they can ex explicitly say what it means that the angels have a symbol of authority over their head, and therefore women must do the same thing. Is the long hair that a woman wears the head covering? Is there an additional head covering that's required? Those are all very complicated uh, debates within Christian interpretation. So that's what puts it in the third tier category. A great way to ask yourself the question if something falls in first, second, or third tier is look at what faithful churches consider first tier, second tier, and third tier issues. That would be a really good way for you to figure out, is this of high importance or is this of low importance? For example, if there's a biblically faithful church, someone that teaches and preaches the scripture on a regular basis and all their people are learned in the word as well, they will not tolerate elders in their midst who would deny the Trinity or would deny essential parts of the atonement. You might find places that call themselves churches that would allow people like that in, but that would not be true in a biblically sound church. Second tier issues, biblically sound churches will collaborate together, but usually second tier issues cause differences in whether they would gather for worship together. For example, you have Reformed Baptist churches and Reformed Presbyterian churches. They don't typically gather for worship together because eventually people have children and you have to decide whether you baptize that child or don't baptize that child. And that becomes a very pragmatic issue on the ground. And sometimes people decide we're just going to associate in two different communities, but that doesn't mean that we don't cross-pollinate sometimes. That doesn't mean we don't interact. That doesn't mean we don't share the gospel together. Third tier issues, you will find people within the exact same church who would differ on third tier issues. You might even find elders at the exact same church who differ on third tier issues. Those are all possible and those are all normal in churches. Some churches, you might not find people who disagree. There, there might be a monolithic thinking among the elders in a church. That's also not necessarily uncommon. But third tier issues are typically those that would, you, you would have difference of opinion, but you can still associate in the same fellowship. What we've just done by trying to put these things in different buckets is we've done theological triage. Hills to die on are issue number one. First tier issues, all of those things are hills to die on. God is good, God is sovereign, salvation is necessary, sin is real, wrath is coming, first tier issues. The nature of the atonement, those are first tier. Second tier issues, baptism, worship, the Lord's Supper would fall into that kind of a category as well. Difference of opinion on that doesn't necessarily mean that you, that you should all uh, say that and if you don't confess that same thing, then you're a heretic, okay? That doesn't mean you shouldn't have spirited debate about those things. In fact, that's very much encouraged, but that doesn't mean you can write someone off as not a Christian if they disagree. By the way, you were, we were laughing when I wrote that in. The reason women fall in the second tier camp is because of that other passage that I read in Corinthians. And that doesn't mean women are a matter of second tier issue. <laughs> 
I feel like I'm seeing it up there and I'm like, I should explain that. <laughs> what, it, what it means is what a woman's role specifically in the church in ministry is uh, differs. That's my 20 minute timer telling me I got to stop. Um, for example, you'll have faithful churches that gather that say women can be deacons. You'll have faithful churches that gather that say, we don't think that women can be deacons in our conviction. That doesn't mean those churches are not sound. That doesn't mean they're heretical. A church may become heretical if they say that women can preach and exercise authority over man, because that would be in direct violation of scripture. So that is a possible first tier issue, depending where it falls. But generally speaking, those, those debates fall into second tier camps. And then third tier, obviously, those are the things that you should have friends who disagree with you vastly on different third tier issues, and you can have lots of good, interesting lunch and coffee conversations with them. So theological triage, that's how you do it.